0: Hollywood may be the centre of American filmmaking, but from its earliest days and right through to the present, it has always depended on the input of foreign talent. Think Charlie Chaplin, F. W. Murnau, Ruben Mamoulian, Frank Capra, Fritz Lang, Alfred Hitchcock, Billy Wilder, Fred Cinnamon, William Wyler, David Lean, Roman Polanski, Milos Forman, Ridley Scott, David Cronenberg, George Miller, Ang Lee, James Cameron, Paul Verhoeven, Jane Campion, Sarah Polly and Mira Nair. And that is not to mention the multitudes of writers, producers, composers, cinematographers, editors, production designers, costume designers, sound designers, special effects artists and actors, whose immense talents have enriched what we regard as American cinema. To that list, you can add at least a trio of Mexican directors. Beautiful, don't you think? What? The sunrise.
1: Look at me, Scout. That's enough! You're forgetting your place, boy. As far as I can tell, my place is right here on the smart end of this rifle. I can promise you two things. One, I'll always look this good. And two, I'll never give up on you.
0: Of course, the challenges Alfonso Coron, Alejandro Eñárritu and Guillermo del Toro face is to maintain the idiosyncrasy that attracted Hollywood's attention in the first place. Quite often, the characteristics that set them apart from their fellow nationals can be swamped in the face of a filmmaking behemoth that demands compromise to capture a wide audience. Del Toro is an example of exactly the opposite. His films are always highly personal, and as such, they bring into play that other foreign influence, the auteur theory. Del Torre's films are a reflection of how he sees the world.
1: I was, you know, I was a really screwed up kid. I was, I, but I was an uh, introvert, you know. I was a very thin, imagine that, a very thin, pale kid, you know, and then, and I uh, I sort of was uh, always thinking about creatures and stories, and uh, that helped me to be able to deal with the world outside, you know. I, I really was looking at the world and sort of creating a cosmology that would help me understand it, with creatures and monsters. You know, what, what makes me make the movies is the monsters. I'm in love with monsters.
0: That was how Del Tora came to make a loosely linked but deeply powerful trilogy. Kronos, about a cryptic device that holds the power of eternal life. The Devil's Backbone, which was about a young boy entering an orphanage that is haunted by ghosts and Pan's Labyrinth, in which a young girl is promised immortality by a mysterious fawn. Clearly, monsters, eternity and the afterlife dominate the plots, and for that, del Toro has his Catholic upbringing to thank. But what he thinks of the religion should never be in doubt.
1: I believe the universe works like a machine, and I believe it is organised, but I'm thinking more on, in terms of quantum physics or fractal geometry. <laughs> I'm thinking that within chaos there is a pattern and we are part of that pattern, and therefore we are organized, but I don't believe there is a long bearded father figure saying, Guillermo has not jerked off today, we shall give him a badge of merit, you know, or Guillermo prayed today, he's gonna be one less day in purgatory.
0: So when you see a crucifix in a del Toro film, or any allusion to religion of any kind, you will be wrong to think anything into it, other than it is just a prop, a signifier of that character's inability to think for themselves, and serve as an agent of freedom. Freedom is central to Pan's labyrinth. It takes place in Spain in 1944, five years after the Civil War that saw Franco's fascists put the country under military rule. It centres around a young girl, Ophelia, played by Ivana Varquero, who travels with her mother, Carmen, played by Adriana Gill, to live in the remote countryside with her new stepfather, Vidal, played by Sergei López. Vidal is a ruthless army captain, hunting down the last few pockets of resistance. And just as sure as Vidal aims to eliminate the isolated Republican rebels, he is also intent on his heavily pregnant wife giving birth to a son. The tyrant must have a male heir, because only a male heir can continue his bloodline. Amid that very real nightmare, Ophelia happens upon a fawn, portrayed beneath layers of prosthetics, makeup, and CGI by Doug Jones. The form tells Ophelia that she is an heiress herself, a princess, and that she will attain immortality only if she achieves three tasks. And from that ensues two contrasting quests. One in the fantasy world of the underground and the other uprooted reality where the fascists vie to destroy a very different underground.
1: You know, in Mexico, you, you get to experience violence in a different way. In a street fight, I, I was being beaten with a chain and I was watching my friend being beaten in the head with a bottle. And all I could think of as I was being beaten with a chain, all I could think of is the bottle is not breaking. Like in the movies, you know, in bar fights, it's the western and, and the bottle breaks. They don't break that easy, man. My friend's head caved in a little bit before the bottle broke.
0: The interlocking of both stories not only arranges the film's ending, but also brings us back around to the film's beginning. Which is no doubt why del Toro's designs incorporate so many circles within the frame. Twin circles, the most obvious being Vidal's dark glasses. The eyeballs, which the pale man sticks into the palm of his hands. Also, there are the two curling horns of the fawn. Then you have the face of Vidal's watch, and the full moon that marks the climax to both plots. But before that full moon, we see the moon-shaped birthmark on Ophelia's shoulder. In fact, more than any other character, it is Ophelia who links both worlds, who is most closely linked to the circles. By comparison, everyone else is associated with straight lines. Just compare the dining scenes in Vidal's house and the table for the pale man, where a strict, single-point perspective dominates the frame. That comparison is very important because just as Ophelia embarks upon a fable, so too is her stepfather attempting to create his own mythology. He carries with him at all times a broken pocket watch that once belonged to his father. Vidal's father broke it so his son would know the exact moment of his hero's death. But there is another strand of comparison, because del Toro is presenting two monsters. One the fawn, the other the fascist. And just as the fawn is utterly indifferent to the morality of its quest, so too are the fascists unconcerned as to the suffering of their victims. The complex relationship between humans and monsters is a recurring motif in del Toro's work and was on display as early as his first film, Kronos. Here he is explaining one of the inspirations for his film debut that embroidered new textures into the vampire mythology.
1: Kronos came from a a bunch of things, growing up Catholic in Mexico, which is a pretty gory affair. And with the idea of uh, vampirism as both a sacrament and and an addiction. You know, and, and, and I tried to reinvent vampirism through alchemy and that all those elements, the fact that in the 1970s, women were wearing what was called living jewelry, which were scarabs with a, fastened to a golden chain. And they used to crawl in their chests, pretty, pretty kinky.
0: Defying expectation, del Toro does not neatly separate the two worlds by way of its monsters or its colors. Instead, he and his cinematographer, Guillermo Navarro, mix the tones back and forth, so the cold greens and blues, which we might associate with darkness and the underworld, are often seen in Vidal's house and the surrounding forest. Likewise, the warmer tones of reds, golds and scarlets can be seen in both Vidal's dinner table and the feast laid out at the Pale Man's Banquet. The point being that with the exception of Vidal, nothing in the film is exclusively good or bad.
1: It's meant to be like that. A fawn, a fawn is uh, a creature that is neither good nor evil. It's uh, like nature. He, he is just a sort of a trickster character. He is a character that is there to be a witness and to shepherd her in her rite of passage, but he has no agenda. He doesn't care if she dies or lives, but she, he's there to make it uh, sure, to make sure that she goes through it no matter how and he's pushing her, he's always pushing her, he's always screwing with her head. You know, he's really, really playing mind games with Ophelia, because that's his role.
0: While del Toro has never denied the influence of certain authors, H.B. Lovecraft, Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins, or filmmakers Terry Gilliam, Louis Bunuel and Jean Cocteau, or films Great Expectations, The Seven Seal and Throne of Blood, Another film to which he admits an enormous debt is Victor Arice's masterful picture Spirit of the Beehive. Released in 1973 and, like Pan's Labyrinth, Arice's allegory also takes place in 1940s rural Spain. And it also rotates around the imagination of a young girl, Ana, played by the then seven-year-old Ana Torrent. Obviously, Arice did not have at his disposal the battery of CGI effects that del Toro did to conjure up enchanting creatures, underground labyrinths and horrifying monsters. Instead, Arice deployed the most powerful tool at a filmmaker's disposal, the imagination of the audience. And for a while, Anna is also an audience member, because very early in the film, she attends a screening of James Whale's 1931 adaptation of Mary Shelley's gothic classic Frankenstein. And it is from that film that Anna first encounters the idea of horror and death and reanimation and monsters roaming the land. All of which ties in neatly, not just the way del Toro, but generations of storytellers have regarded childhood. Culturally, we tend to romanticise that age. Can you ever remember it raining when you were young? Of course not. All our summers came laced with sunshine and long nights adventuring beyond our neighbourhoods. While such idyllic memories are not necessarily outright lies, they do nonetheless mask darker times.
1: I like the idea of uh, uh, not not condescending to the kid characters by saving them just because you need to save them. Uh, I think that uh, kids are no different than adult, char- adult characters. You know, if you think of the war in Iraq, and they say, you know, X number of civilians, what a great war, civilians were killed. No, 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 give me the number of children Give me the number of old people. Give me the number of fathers and brothers. Don't fucking tell me civilians. You know, and I think fiction tends to sanitize these things. Kids are no, you know, kids are murdered, raped, abducted, sold, bought. Every day. But yet we think, we think as a society, that our fiction should not reflect that danger. And I don't believe in that. Because as a kid, the scariest time I've ever had in my life is as a kid. So Pan's doubles back on chronos reflect that.
0: Here is something else to consider. Within months of Pan's Labyrinth opening in theatres, del Tour's compatriots Quaron and Inyaritu, had released their own films. Quaron's Children of Men offered up a dystopian future where Britain is living in paranoid and futile isolation while Iñárritu's Babel told seemingly disconnected stories from across the globe that showed us just how interconnected our world actually is. Whether you still go to that near-antiquated place called a video store, or prefer instead to go online and stream a movie, invariably what's on offer is categorised into genres. But sometimes genre is not enough, and we find ourselves in the section called World Cinema. For me, that category really is an absurdity, because it prompts the question, what isn't world cinema? American, or more pertinently, Hollywood cinema? It suggests Hollywood is so separate, so distinct, refined and pure, as to be above and beyond all else. On the flip side, however, it also suggests that world cinema is little more than a state of mind to be used as a marketing tool, in which case it is very clear that del Toro has found a loyal, strong and wide audience, which is greatly reassuring, Whether it be Kronos, The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, Blade, Hellboy or Pacific Rim, del Toro proves that cinema is an international language that transcends all manner of borders and delivers yet another victory over the dark forces of fascism, xenophobia and isolationism.